Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's again turn back to John chapter 7. Last week we looked at uh, verse 24, and we looked at and studied the aspect of how to make good, solid uh, choices. We call them judgment calls uh, in our Christian lives. Our verse was 724, which simply said, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And uh, life most certainly is about the choices that we make. There's no question about that. And I'm sure you don't have to be live very many years to realize it can just take one or two bad choices that alter the course of your life forever. So, uh, you know, and a lot of those bad choices <clears throat> go back to not making good judgment calls on what we allow in our life. And um, the aspect of not basically believing everything you hear or even see. But you use the principles of the Word of God to separate the real from the phony. And uh, this is what most of God's people, they fail in being able to do this. And this is why they make bad choices. This is why they make bad decisions. This is why they look at something or somebody and um, they don't make the judgment on on what that person is doing in their life right, and then they allow it into their own life, and then, of course, uh, the, the end result is not very good. And I showed you, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. I showed you the two undeniable keys to see what is the real deal versus what is phony. And the first one is simply sound doctrine. Does the person's life line up with the principles of the Word of God uh, in an entirety? And the second aspect is that you look at the fruit of God in their lives. Those two things are indispensable because those two things cannot be faked. You can't fake truth and you can't fake fruit. You can fake Christianity and give the appearance, but if you listen to what they say, watch what they do, In many cases, or most cases, or in all cases for that matter, uh, there won't be any fruit, and then you can very clearly make that judgment whether you want to allow that in your life or or not, or in the life of your family. Now, to better understand when I talk about fruit, and I want to kind of go through and explain this today um, as we go on through here, when I talk about the fruit in our lives, you know, it'll, it'll only come, real biblical fruit will only come from the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is found in the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, you'll find that there's nine of them. And the fruit of God in your life and my life, when we talk about it, it'll come only from the relationship we have with Christ in the intimacy that we have with Him. When a husband and wife get married, which is, you know, uh, uh, a common deal, and they start to have a family, that baby or that child will come through the two uh, entering into the intimacy that produces a child. And, uh, you know, there's, there's parents that have tried to have kids for two or three years and can't have them, and, and then suddenly one day, you know, uh, the baby is, is going to be here and you're, you're going to have a baby. Praise the Lord for that. But my point is this, you don't always bear fruit. It's through the ongoing intimate relationship that you have with Christ that you will bear fruit, and that fruit will uh, be evident. And the fruit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, will only come through us walking in the Spirit and having that intimate relationship with Him. One of the greatest things that you want to look for in a person's life, and I'm going to explain this in just a second, is... Uh, whether the fruit is there or not. Because if they don't have the fruit, then all you're going to have here, and this is what the verse is saying, is the appearance. And you can't fake fruit. Fruit is has to be the real deal, as sound doctrine is. And, uh, you know, uh, when I talk about fruit, I'm talking about three aspects of your life. Because when you talk like this, you'll find people that, that, uh, you know, maybe hasn't won anybody to Christ yet. And so when I talk like this, you get defeated over it and think, well, there must be something wrong with me because I haven't won anybody to Christ yet. 
or you find people that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that you just got saved and you really want to win people to Christ, but you're in that early stage. Let me tell you what fruit really is. Now, fruit will be, first of all, for all of you young parents and moms and dads, the first guaranteed fruit you have to produce is your family. That's a given. If you fail in that one, then the rest of it is to no avail. And I've known many, 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 many preachers, many, 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 many Christians who that their families were a disaster, but they're out there pushing soul winning uh, and populating Christianity everywhere when their own kids won't follow them. And it's the real fruit has to start with you and your family. And that's where you learn the basic technique of fruit bearing. And then obviously, the second aspect will, will be the people that you win to Christ. But I want to say that, and I want to clarify that. It isn't just that person, Billy Bob, winning Jimmy Joe to Christ. Not here anyhow. If you're, if you're here this morning and you've been coming to church and you're unsaved, or maybe uh, like Dalton, you just got saved, I, I got to confess to you, Dalton, you were set up. <laughs> you had no choice, no chance. There have been people praying for you ever since you walked in that door. Amen. There were people that were loving you, and uh, I know some of them, some of them really wanted to be your friend because they found out you won a lottery and they wanted to borrow some money off of you, but people became your friend and loved you because you're a very lovable guy. But we know when God brings us somebody, it's our responsibility to give them the best presentation of what a Christian is it can be. And in your case, it worked. It worked in you two guys' case. I mean, it was the fact that, uh, you know, when you went into that gun shop, you wasn't looking to get saved, but you were looking for something that was real, and God gave it to you, see? And you guys didn't have much of a chance either, because we've been praying for you ever since we found out about you. All you people who gotten saved in our church, I'm sorry, you were set up. You were set up by a bunch of God's people who love you enough that want to see you in heaven for all of eternity. A bunch of people who have been praying for you, been talking about you, in a good sense, talking about you, talking, uh, talking, you know, oh, he's doing this or she's doing this or they're coming here or they're coming there or let's really get this around them. And that, we do that because that's what Christianity is really all about. First of all, we want you to see how real we really are. We're a family here. We're a family. And uh, as a family, we, we always want more people to come into the family. And it's a thing where uh, when God brings us somebody, we know what we ought to do. We love them. We care for them. We pray for them. We put all the things in their life that we can to help point them to Christ. And then we ultimately let the Holy Spirit of God do the work in your life. But you know what it is? This is real bearing fruit. It's the Holy Spirit of God coming down and working through a church. Everybody in it not just one or two people. He may use somebody to win this person to Christ, but it's everybody involved. And I'm telling you, when these boys got saved or the girls have gotten saved or this person got saved in the last year, everybody in this church bore that fruit. It wasn't just the person that wanted to Christ. It was everybody that prayed for them. It was everybody that shook their hand and was nice to them. It was everybody who went out of their way to make them feel comfortable here because that's what Christians do. And that's what the Holy Spirit of God does. And you do that because you're walking in the Spirit yourself. You're in the Word of God. You're aware and in tune to people who need Christ. And so what does God do? God reaches down through this church. You. And it may be this person sits down and wins them to Christ and opens the Bible and shows them how to get saved. Praise the Lord for that. Somebody's got to do it. But it's everybody who was involved who bore that fruit. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it's our fruit as a church, your fruit, because you were part of it. And I'm not even going to say you were indirectly part of it. That would be the wrong thing to say. You were directly involved in it because it was the Holy Spirit of God working through you Maybe something you said, maybe one little thing you did, maybe one little thing out of the ordinary that you took the time to say or to do 
that without anybody ever knowing it was the turning point in that person's life. That's how God does it. That's how he does it here, anyhow. So you, you see that, you know, it starts with your family, and then it works with the fact that the people that uh, you win to Christ. And then it goes into the third module, which is once they get saved, now we have the job of being not only a soul winner. We bore the fruit of that person finding Christ. But now we have to take the responsibility of pruning that young tree that it bears fruit. And that makes us all not only soul winners, but husbandmen. And back in Genesis, you'll find that when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, that God put Adam down there to dress the garden to keep it, all the trees and all the fruit. He was a husbandman. And a husbandman takes care of the trees to make sure they bear the right fruit. So now you're going to be discipled, see? Now somebody's going to sit down and teach you the Bible, teach you the basic fundamentals of the Bible. Then we'll take you through discipleship too. And then, uh, you know, uh, it'll be a thing where that is our responsibility, not as soul winners, but also as husbandmen, to make sure that the fruit that God gives us. The Bible says back there in Proverbs, I think it's around Proverbs 26 or 27, that we are to, we are to, we are to know the state of our flocks. We look nigh unto our herds. And uh, that means that you take care of what God gives you. And it's a thing where it's been a rule number one of my life and my ministry that I always want to take care of, of, who, what, of what and who God gives me. I never, never, never want to forget the people who have been there for me uh, when I needed them. Because it, it's, a, it's an acceleration for me to be there when somebody else needs. And our church is filled with that. Somebody has a need, we're on board. I, I look at Jordan coming all the way over from Indiana. He's a tree. He's saved. He's a tree. God is going to transplant him here. Now it's our responsibility to pick him up, give him what he needs, help prune him, and make sure that he bears fruit. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, we've done this for years and years and years, and you know as well as I do, not all the trees take root. It's just the way of life. I mean, it is. Not all the trees make it. Not all of them bear fruit. And Bible makes it very clear in Matthew that there's some trees when they don't bear fruit, you've got to cut them down. And it's a thing where uh, that happens. But uh, it's, it, it's just the way it is. And you never focus on the trees that don't make it. You want to give your full attention to the trees that God has given you that it's our responsibility to be their husbandman. So bearing fruit isn't just winning somebody to Christ. Bearing fruit isn't just about, oh, I just won so-and-so to Christ. Well, praise the Lord, and that is bearing fruit. But it's all of our jobs, and we do it together. You may not be the one that actually opens the Bible, but you are the one that prayed. You were the one that encouraged. You're the one that shook their hand. You're the one that made them feel comfortable that the Holy Spirit of God had a freeway into their life. That's what New Testament Christianity is, and that's what a New Testament church is. Now, when you don't see those three areas, then the Bible tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, that we are to abstain from all appearances of evil because what you have without those three is an appearance. And I'm sad to say today, and I don't say it with any joy in my heart, but that's where most churches are actually at. They're just an appearance. They got the building, they got the pews, they got this. It's like that little deal, you know, here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people. That's all you have. It's not real. It's the appearance. Real, fundamental, biblical doctrine will produce fruit. And, uh, you know, and I told you that the Christian life will be about the judgment calls, the decisions, what and who we allow in our lives and what we don't. And I showed you last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that great verse that simply says to you and to me that he that is spiritual judges all things. And I showed you, we never judge people. That's not our job. A lot of people do. But that's not our job. We judge things. And we judge whether I'm going to allow that. I may like the person, but I'm not going to allow that, what they're doing, to taint what I have with the Lord. And those are the judgment calls that we have to make. 
I, I wouldn't hang out with anybody that's a gossiper or a slanderer or anybody who sowed discord because I may like the person, but I judge what they're doing is totally unbiblical and I want nothing to do with it and I don't want to be associated with it. And last week I gave you, you know, two places that illustrate this great doctrine on God not judging a man, but rather judging his works. And the first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's the judgment of saved people. And the second one was great white throne in Revelation chapter 20. Now, I didn't say this. In fact, somebody pointed this out to me this week that is more spiritual than I am, and I missed it until I saw it. But did you ever notice anything about those two passages dealing with a man's works? Now, we know Revelation chapter 20 will talk about an unsaved man, and it says that God will judge his works, plural. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, whose end shall be according to their works. That's an unsaved man. An unsaved man's life is filled with the works of sin, and at the great white throne, God will lay all of those works out and judge him by them, the works of unrighteousness that produce, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the works of the flesh and the fruits of unrighteousness. So that one is good. But did you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the trained eye, <clears throat> it doesn't say works. It says work, singular. You know why? Because of the judgment seat of Christ, <clears throat> that's the work of God that he began in you in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 where he says, being confident of this very thing that he which began a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, he judges your work that he started in you the day you got saved. That's the work that gets judged in us at the judgment seat. Not you, not your sins. Is when you got saved, he began a good work in you. What did you do with that work? An unsaved man, it's a works of his unrighteousness. For you and me, it's the one single word work that he began in us the day we got saved. Wow. The difference between two little words, one being singular, one being plural, work versus works. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 that at the judgment seat of Christ, he takes that work and he sorts it out. Now, along with that, in case you didn't catch this, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, you'll know that he lists nine fruits of the Spirit. But when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's singular, just like the work. In other words, everything that God brings through your life and my life starts with your relationship with the Holy Spirit of God that is the fruit of God. So you want to take that home with you today. You want to you look at that and remember that at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not about the right things or the wrong things that we've done it's about the day you got saved, he began a work in your life. What have you done with that work? And that's why this church has a responsibility to these young men and young ladies that have moved here, who have come in here and have gotten saved, that want to be part of this because they believe that this is where God wants them to be. We have a responsibility to take the work that God began in us and cultivate the work that God has begun in them. That's New Testament Christianity. So, last week in Proverbs chapter 3, we talked about putting your confidence in the Lord, didn't we? Just a short little blurb on that thing. But let me ask you this, in light of uh, putting our confidence in the Lord, let me ask you this. I told you last week that in the days and the times that we live in, we need to have our confidence in the Lord. But let me ask you this, compared to the 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the work God began in you, how confident is God in you and me that that work is going to get done? See? We as God's people, we always are afraid we can't trust God. You know that's the most ridiculous thing you could ever say? Amen. Well, I don't know if I can really trust God. That's not the issue. The real problem is can God trust you? That's the problem. See? But we get it all backward. So we learn, don't look or listen to anybody who has no fruit-bearing process. And I gave you the great, two great contrasts of that was the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the leaders of the nation of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Christ had the doctrine. He had the power of God. He certainly had the fruit of God. They had absolutely nothing. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, a great verse, it says, By their fruits ye shall know them. One of the greatest truths in judging what we will allow in our lives or not allow in our lives and from who will be no barren fig trees allowed. We had to get T-shirts with that put on it and sell them in the bookstore. No barren, no barren fig trees allowed. Now, when it comes to judging people, go back to that for a second. The only person we are really should be judging is ourselves. And a model for that will be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where he says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? You see, if God's people would spend all the time judging themselves first, you wouldn't have time to judge anybody else. Your basket would be full. I would suggest that you smell your own basket of fruit. Put a gas mask on before you do it. I'd say that you look at your own fruit before you tear into somebody else. Then you judge for yourself a righteous judgment as to what I'm going to allow in my life and not allow in my life because I don't want to wind up as a barren fig tree. Somebody one time treated me terrible and, and did some terrible things to me and said some terrible things to me. And uh, I responded to them in a very kind, gracious way and even helped them through some tough times that they were going through. They were kind of amazed at that and they asked me at a later time, after all the things I said to you and said about you and did to you, you had an opportunity to just to throw me along the road and you didn't. And I just want to know why you didn't do that. And it was, the answer was so quick and so simple. I wish I had slowed down a little bit and said it. I just simply said, you know why? because that would have made me just like you. And I don't want to be like you. I want to be like Christ. Oh, I'm far from what Christ wants me to be, but I don't want to be that way. And so you begin to see that, you know, no barren fruit. You judge yourself first. Examine yourself. We need to do that on an hourly basis. Uh, we, we need to look at ourselves examine our motive, examine what we say, examine our attitudes, examine everything about that. And then the second thing is, he says, you've got to prove yourself. Don't take face value what somebody says about their own walk with God or how much time they spend in the Bible or how much they love the God. They have to prove themselves. And there's a process to do that found in the Bible. And then I guess the greatest one of these is, is probably the worst unknown, know yourself. Know yourself. Know what you're capable of. Know, know what your limitations are. Know the fact that you can be a real problem. Know, know the fact that you're, the best thing for you to do when you get into a crowd is to take a roll of duct tape and put it over your mouth. Realize that there's things that about us that we need to really work on. And I'll tell you, God's people are famous for wanting to work on everybody else's problems. We need to work on our own. Now, how was that for an introduction? Pretty good, I'd say. Now, today, we're going to continue in John chapter 7, and yes, we will tie it all together as we always do. And, um, you know, and see the religious leaders now, are, which we have been following through this, they're right back at him again. They never quit, uh, even today. And we know that the leaders have caused a great division with the people over Christ's teaching and his ministry to them. And in reality, uh, this will be uh, the great dividing of light versus darkness, truth versus error, you know, uh, you know, fruit versus barrenness, the spirit of God versus the spirit of the Antichrist or the spirit of the devil, all of it over his authority and his doctrine and the fruit that his ministry is producing. You remember last week that uh, people would, I told you that people with no fruit will always attack those who have fruit. That's just a standard operational procedure of human nature, just the way it is. And as we glance down through chapter 7 here, 
from verse 25 on, and we, we look at all these things, and we will in a second, we see from last week in verses 25 and 27, there's a group that says, hey, he's the very Christ. Then in verses 28 and 29, the Lord Jesus Christ himself tells them that he's of God, from God, and what he's doing is because of God. Then in verse 30, there's a group that wants to take him and now kill him, see? And then it says in verse 31, yet many believed. We got a real division here. In verse 32, they again want to take him and kill him. Then in verse 41, another group says, no, 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 he's the Christ. Then in verse 45, the other group come back and says, why haven't you taken him yet and killed him? There's a division among the people over him. Now, you know what? I don't care if it's back then, any time in church history or today, Christ will always divide. Truth divides. So then we're going to look at verses 47 through 53 today. And we're going to look at another great lesson behind his rejection. I want you to see this thing in its complete composite. Another reason for the fundamental bottom line rejection by the leaders of Israel. Let's read it. Verse 47. Then answered them that uh, them the Pharisees, Are ye so deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him? And know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went to his own house. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you today for the folks that are here. We pray, Father, your blessings upon all that we endeavor to do for you. And we just pray, Father, that you'll help us today to put it all together and make uh, this uh, a very clear presentation of of not only how they treated Christ, but what we can expect today, and yet help each one of us realize that bearing fruit is, is the job of this church, not just one person. Uh, Lord, we don't have a soul-winning ministry because our church is a soul-winning ministry. And we just take the people that God brings us, and we just do with them what God would have us to do, and it bears fruit, not because of me, but because of all of these folks here who love you and love that book and are walking in the Spirit of God. We thank you now and praise you. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. You know, I, I, I read down here in verse 52 where it says, They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search. Get in the Bible. Search. And look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. You know, that is typical of Bible scholars. They're telling Nicodemus, what? Well, you need to search the Scriptures, son, and you need to, the Bible tells, doesn't say anything about a prophet coming out of Galilee. Well, that's, that's Bible scholars for you because in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, you have a prophet, Jonah, who comes from Galilee. Bible scholars don't get the Bible down very well. And there's a clear case where they say something isn't in the Bible, but right there in front of your face if you can claim to read it. Now, notice like today, the educated class of the day belittles the little guy who simply believes what Christ says. And they, they're saying, in essence, look at us. You need to follow us. Have any of us, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, do you see any of us following him? Has any of the Pharisees believed on him? You guys are deceived. You really don't have the education we have. Why, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine over here, they got PhDs. They're a member of the Sanhedrin. They've been to Bible colleges. They're doctors. They got all the great degrees. You guys are dumb hillbillies out of Raytown, Missouri. You don't have the benefit of our education, so you're so stupid, you believe that this man shows up and claims to be the absolute perfect Word of God incarnate. Boy, are you dumb. You guys don't know the law. You don't know the Greek and the Hebrew. We do, because we've studied it. And I'm telling you right now, you got a curse on you because you're following this guy and really don't know what the Bible says. 
But you people who really don't know the Greek and the Hebrew, well, you'll never figure it out without us. You stupid people who believe that God could give us a book that is perfect, without error, that's inspired, without running it through us? Why, you've been deceived. Why, everybody knows God only works through the Greek and the Hebrew. Why, everybody knows that you can't get the God uh, without a college education in Bible. The Bible scholars who will really tell you what God meant to say when he screwed up his Bible and put mistakes in it, but depending on us with our education to straighten God's word out. That's these guys. Some things never change. They wanted to correct the word of God at the first coming of Christ and say that you can't follow him. And now at the second coming of Christ, you have him in the volume of a book. The word was God and the word was with God and the word was God. And at the second coming of Christ, they're trying to tell you the same thing. And their thinking is, come on, guys, how does God get along without my superior intellect? How do you get along without me telling you what the Bible says? Boy, that's a clear indication where that comes from, Isaiah 14, 14, where Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High God. Now we begin to see what really drives this crowd. Today we're going to get to the bottom line of it. Now we begin to see what drives this crowd who have no doctrine, they have absolutely no authority, and barren fruit. Now we see the real reason for their rejection and their hatred and their slander. If we would turn back to Mark chapter 15 at the crucifixion, the real issue now comes to the surface. And in Mark 15, 10, when they're getting ready to crucify him, he reveals what the underlying problem is where it says, for he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. You see it again in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. They envied him. You see it after he's dead and risen and went back to heaven in Paul's gospel in Acts 13, 45 and Acts 17, 5, uh, their attitude toward Christianity, they envied it. Now, learn what I'm about to tell you. This is worth $100 million in gold bullion. This is better than any winning the lottery. This is better than anything you could ever have in life. This truth, his truth has, has, has taken from them the one thing all false teachers, all false leaders, all heretics, all people who spend their life destroying the Word of God, slandering all evil men and women who so desperately need to keep up their appearance. This has described the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are upset. They're mad because they want to get rid of him, but he won't go away. They've devised all kinds of plans to get rid of him, yet he's still here. And now we find out after the slander, the lying, calling of the devil, and all the things that he does and denying the Holy Spirit of God by which he does these works, now we see what the real fundamental problem is. They envied him. You know why they envied him? Because he had the one thing they don't have. And boy, listen to me on this one. They needed one thing to be able to keep up the appearance to the people. You know what it was? Credibility. And now the people won't follow them because they now have been exposed of having no authority, no fruit, and now no credibility. And that leaves them fake and phony, and they hate him for exposing them by even showing up. And now they envy him for what he has and what they don't. The root cause of slander will always be envy. You need to write this down and remember it. The root cause of slander will always be envy, and the root cause of envy will always be a barren fig tree. Boy, that is absolutely the most astounding thing you will ever get today. 
Now, this is a lesson that I have learned years and years and years ago when dealing with the modern-day heretics, the cults, or any person who will try to discredit the truth. And, uh, you know, this is how you have to deal with them. Maybe this will help you because I see this wrong so many times in so many ways. You have to find a way to deny them what they really want most, and that is credibility. You know, when I look in dealing with the occults, that will be like the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Church of Christ, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Charismatics, that whole crowd. The first thing you have to realize is that these are called American cults. These are poor man's religions. If you want to really go to hell in class, become a Roman Catholic. If you want to go to hell in a golden Cadillac, get into the Catholic Church. You'll slide in there with all the grandeur of the pomp and the circumstance. If you want to go to hell with a Volkswagen with the wheels off, get into one of these American cults. I would say that if, and this is just me now, I need this for my message, so this may not be true. I would say that a guy that goes to hell that's a Roman Catholic all of his life, he might be able to in hell to, to hold a little bit of credibility for the fact that, well, you know, I believed in an esteemed religion, even though it was absolutely fake and it put me in hell. It was a grandioso thing. It's been around for a long time. I think the most ridiculous, funniest thing on the planet is to slide into hell with a JW or a Mormon. I mean, from... A, just a worldly standpoint. And this is why, you know, most people don't know this. They're, why are they called the American cults? I'll tell you. Because in history, from the beginning of America in 1776, I've told you a couple of weeks ago, there was seven great awakenings across this country. Legitimate Holy Spirit of God revivals that he sent from the East Coast to the West Coast. And the reason why he did that is because the devil was popping up these American cults to counter the great American revivals. And, and, and so we look at these today, and God's people are, uh, I love them to death, but they're always not the smartest people on the planet. When you look at these American cults that I just gave you, none of them start before 1800. You know, if you're a Jehovah Witness, if you're a Mormon, if you're a Church of Christ, if you're a Seventh-day Disadvantagist or whatever, Charismatic, you are nowhere in history for 1,900 years. There isn't one person on Earth, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, or Pluto who ever believed one stick of what you claim is the truth of God today. You didn't show up till after 1,800. Maybe 1820, 1840, 1850. My goodness, the charismatic movement didn't show up to 1,900. But see, as time passes, people who don't know anything about the Bible, they forget those things, and now these, these organizations pop up, and they want you to believe they're legitimate. And most of God's people make the fatal mistake when you try to deal with them. None of these existed before 1800. So when you deal with them, they will always try to go one-on-one with you with the Bible. They'll always try to debate you. Walk, you see the Jehovah Witnesses. They have a plan to what they do. They'll walk. You see them. I can spot them three blocks away. The Mormons always ride bicycles. They wear the little white tags. Jehovah Witnesses, they walk. And uh, I, I, I see them. I, they work my neighborhood. They, don't, they mark your house once you don't, they don't get anywhere, so they don't waste their time. But it was several, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, maybe, maybe longer than that, that I was out there on a Saturday morning and I saw these two guys walking down the street here and I immediately saw they were Jehovah Witnesses. And they come up to my, I waited for them, you know, they come up to my front porch and they said, and before they could say anything, I said, hey, you guys must be Jehovah Witnesses. The little guy looked at the big guy and said, yeah, how did you know that? And I said, well, I'm a Jehovah Witness. And I, he said, you are? And I said, yeah. 
He says, well, we know all of our brethren in this area. We didn't know anything about you. And he says, when was you Jehovah Witness? I said, about 25 years ago when I asked Jesus Christ, the Jehovah God, to come into my heart and save me from a literal burning hell. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, you should be witnesses unto me, so I'm a Jehovah Witness. The little guy looked at the big guy and he said, that's not the kind we are. I said, that's the only kind there is. You guys must be phonies. See? And then I proceeded to deal with not giving them any credibility. Because when you sit down and open the Bible with them, that's what they want. Because here's their thinking. If you're stupid enough to open up a Bible and debate them, then your thinking must be that they're credible, worthy of debate. And so what you do, they give you your ver- their verses, you give you yours, you accomplish nothing. They go away now thinking they're credible because here is a Christian who actually debated them on the Bible, so they must have some kind of credibility, and that's the wrong thing to do. You don't go there with them. You beat them to death with the fact that you were nowhere in history before 1830 if you're a JW. And I'll say... You believe you're the truth. You believe you're the only true church. I mean, they're all the same. You could do this with any of them. And they'll say, yes, 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 yes. And I'll say, you believe there's no salvation outside of your church, right? Because I'm a Baptist, so I'm dying to go into hell, right? You have that, or not hell. I'm dying to go into destruction. That's right. I said, let me ask you a question. I'll become a Jehovah Witness in 30 seconds. We'll all go down there at the Kingdom Hall, and you can baptize me or whatever you do. Just answer one question. What is that? Where were you in 1750? Give me one J.W. pastor. Just give me one. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you, for every one guy you give me, I'll give you 50 who believe what I believe. I'll give you Savonarola. I'll give you John Rawlings. I'll give you, I'll give you Martin Luther. I'll give you, I could go on for all day long. Just give me one. I said, I'll do it better than that. Give me one, you claim you're the only true church, give me one Jehovah Witness in 1400 that believed what you believe. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a million dollars, just give me one person and prove it in history. Guy said, well, you don't even have a million dollars. I said, I get it together before you find a guy. They're not there. They're nowhere. What they desperately want from you and from me is credibility because they have none. That's the problem with the scribes. They envied what he had because they didn't have it. These American cults, every one of them, they have no credibility. They go back nowhere before the 1800s, and they desperately want to be proven that they're the real deal. And stupid Baptists do it by arguing with them, getting into a bait with them, when all you need to do is just simply say, you know what, you're a phony because you're nowhere in history. And just stay on that point. You know what he'll do? It's like catching fishing and catching a 500-pound marlin. He'll be all over the place, man. He'll try to take you here, try to take you here. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And you just keep coming back. What about where were you? you got 19 centuries. Use them. Well, what about this? Where were you in the second century? Just give me one. Well, what about that? Where were you in the third century? Well, what about that? Where were you in the fourth century? you got all, you got 19 of them. Use them. And you beat them to death. You know why? They have no credibility. And the thing you never want to do is give them that credibility. That's what drove the scribes and the Pharisees up the wall with Jesus. He would never give them the credibility. You notice he never got in a doctrinal argument with them? He never did. He may have quoted something to him, but he never said, okay, boys, let's just sit down and find out. When they said there was no prophet in Galilee, he didn't say, oh, I told you there was. He didn't. You know why? He's not giving them any credibility. Only stupid Baptists give them credibility. You simply camp on the fact that they have no uh, authority or legitimacy or credibility. You know, this is why they always want to, heretics will always want to debate you, to prove their point and gain some kind of credibility. And, uh, you know, the Bible scholars now, they do the same thing, but they do it in reverse. They're like our boys here in John chapter 7. They'll slander and discredit you for believing that you have a Bible that is absolute, that you can trust, that doesn't take them to correct it to tell you what the Bible really means. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You see this 
in history, if you're any kind of observer of history, you see this tremendous pressure around 1900 with the good fundamental guys who write good stuff. But they bend to the pressure of what's happening because around 1900 is when scholasticism and higher education began to take over the Bible from the common man. Now, we have in our bookstore back there a book by the guy named Clarence Larkin. Clarence Larkin wrote a number of good books. The Spirit World's a good one. Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth is a good one. The one we make reference to all the time is, uh, is uh, uh, Dispensational Truth, which I'll be honest to tell you, uh, uh, it, it's one of the best books you'll get your hands on for understanding a lot of things about the Bible. But I'm going to tell you this. If you buy Dispensational Truth, and it's a big book back there, the first couple chapters... Get you to your Zacto cutter and cut them out. He goes, through the, he goes through the stupidest stuff on the creation, about the canopy theory, about the cloud surrounding the earth, about the water vapor and the canopy of the cloud. And where does he get that? The Bible in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You know where he got that? He was growing up in a time where he wanted to be recognized as a Bible scholar. He wanted to be recognized as an intellect like they all did. And he knew there was a lot of pressure and a lot of criticism. And he could get away with all the other stuff in the Bible, but he knew if he put about the creation of the world in Genesis 1-1, 1-2, 1-3, and all down through there, if he laid that out that that was a firefight between God and the devil and the devil getting kicked out of heaven, he could never be recognized as a scholar. You know what he did? He came up with the most ridiculously, scientifically plausible event that the scientific educated world could have said, hmm, yeah, that's pretty good. If he had just said, you know what is Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is? God and the devil got into a fist fight up there in heaven. They said a galactic war going on to make Star Wars look like a bunch of little kids shooting marbles. And God kicked the devil out, and now they just cost this whole thing into chaos. You can't, that's, that's not a scholar. I'll never be a scholar. I'll never have a doctor degree. Giving me a doctor degree is like putting whipped cream on an onion. <laughs> but I will always be a Bible believer. Because I don't need that stuff. Amen. I know where the fruit really is. I know where the credibility is. Back in my day, this would be 1970 to 1990, if you believe the King James Bible 1611 was the absolute perfect word of God, they made fun of you. Back in my day in those times, Peter S. Ruckman, which we all know, uh, we have many of his books in there, he was the champion of the King James Bible, and he was, he was you know, most of the guys who believe the book today would you know, either directly or indirectly run it back to him. So back in my day, by all the guys that were educated, when they looked at me, or guys like me, and we believe the King James Bible is the word of God against education. You know what they called us? Ruckmanites. Oh, you're just a Ruckmanite. Now, back in 1930s to 1940s, J. Frank Norris split from the Southern Baptist Convention and really tore the whole country apart and started what we know as fundamentalism and uh, led a whole bunch of people out of the Southern Baptist Church and Convention that actually believed the Bible was the Word of God like you and I do. They called his followers Norsites. Back around the 1900s, 1880 to 1900, somewhere in there, there was a guy whose name was John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby is called the father of dispensationalism. He was a writer back there that took the Bible and put it in its proper divisions of dispensations against the rest of the world that was against dispensationalism. And he, if we have dispensational truth because of him, we have the 11 or 12 dispensations through our Bible that I've taught you because of him. Back then, his fathers were called Darbyites. In the Dark Ages, you had a group of people who the Roman Catholic Church was saying, you need to follow us. Peter was the first pope. You need to follow Matthew and Peter and all that stuff. And a group said, no, nah, we're not following that. We believe that the apostle Paul was the apostle of the church, and we're going to follow his teachings instead of your teachings. 
They were called Polyseans. See? See how it works? Back around 180 A.D., you had a guy by the name of Montanus. And things were starting to fall apart back then, even then. And people were saying, well, you got to be baptized to go to heaven and all this stuff. Montana said, uh, no, 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 we're sticking with the book. We believe that you get saved through the blood of Christ. And he broke away from that crowd. And the people that followed him were called monotheists. Back around 200 to 300, you had a guy by the name of Novatius. And they were starting back then to teach the fact of all millennialism that Christ really wasn't coming back. And he says, we're staying with a book. We're going to believe that the literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ and all his followers, novations. Then you had a guy around 200 to 300, name was Nestorius. And they started to say, well, the Lord's Supper is the way you get saved. It's a sacrament, and you need to take the Lord's Supper. And he says, up your nose with a rubber hose. We're going to stick with the book. And his people were called Nestorians. I was told all my early years by modern scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, you're just following a man. And I would always say back, (laughs) <laughs> That's what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. Amen, Amen brother. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul said, he told the church at Corinth, be ye followers of me as I'm following of Christ. You claim me a following this guy. Who told you there were mistakes in that King James Bible? Amen. So you're studying one night and the Holy Spirit of God came down and put his arm around you and illuminated a room with that little golden finger and said, see that right there? That's from me. But I was wrong. (laughs) You see this verse here and this verse here? I put that in there. I'm the Holy Spirit of God. I screwed up. That's a contradiction. Did God show you those mistakes? No, No, some man showed you those mistakes. You say, well, you're following a man. Who are you following? Everybody follows somebody. You know what you better do, folks? You better follow the right man. That's all. I mean, the idea where you're following a man, you're following a man. Everybody follows somebody. Had a Catholic one time, he said, you believe the King James Bible is the absolute word of God. I said, I do. He said, then you get on me for having a pope. I said, yes, I do. He says, you got a paper pope. That's all you got. Your Bible's a paper pope. I said, amen, brother. What do you mean? I said, I believe it's a paper pope. At least mine's mine's sinless. That's better than I can say for yours. Everybody's following somebody. Make sure you follow the right man who's got the right Bible, the right in line, in the right church, with the right doctrine, with the right fruit. And all down through history. And Paul confirmed this when he said in 2 Timothy 2, 2 to young Timothy, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others. Somebody's always following somebody. You just make sure you're following the right person. Real Bible truth has been passed down through the true line of the church from Paul to today. It's established truth. Now also Paul tells us dealing with heresy, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 19, he says, For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be manifest among you. Now, see that? What a great principle that is. We always look at heresies as being bad. and I, I mean, they can confuse a lot of people who don't know anything about the Bible. But he's saying there that a man who teaches heresy or believes some false teaching, God will use it to always show you what's real and what's approved of by God and what's not. You know how he does that? Two ways. You know what to look for? One, doctrine. No historical reference to what that guy believes. I'm going to tell you right now, all my ministry, I get phone calls or emails from people or somebody will get a hold of me on the phone and they'll say, uh, are you pastor of the church? And I said, yes. And he says, I'm so-and-so and I'm passing through town and I'd like to, I'd like to come and speak to your church. And I'd say, well, I'm sorry. You know, we're, we, we're all booked up. We got a full schedule. Well, he says, I just want you to know that God has revealed to me truth that he's never revealed to anybody else. He showed me something that he has never shown anybody in the history of the church. 
and I think your church needs to hear it. And I answered him, now I know we're full up. Be careful with people like that. Be careful with guys who come in, and I have them all the time. They'll say, well, God showed me something. He didn't show Pete Rockman. He didn't show this guy. He didn't show that guy, and God just gave me this truth. And there's no place in history where anybody in the church ever believed anything like that. And it's things like that that prove what's right and what's wrong because God always works through established format of truth. God has not given somebody something today that nobody else has ever seen in some major doctrine of the Bible. You think God's going to let the doctrine of the Bible go for, what, 1,900 years and suddenly now he's going to change it because of you? And if that isn't enough, just check their fruit basket. I'll have a tough time, a guy coming in and going to teach all you the Bible and teach me the Bible when his own kids won't follow him anywhere. Something wrong with that fruit. Because by their fruits you shall know them. No barren fig trees. Now here's the absolute rule to always follow. My own personal rule. Always follow the man with the right doctrine that is provable down through the established New Testament church. There has to be an unbroken chain of evidence of Bible teaching or it's no good. The other is, well, uh, you know, it, it's just you want to have a, you want to have good solid men with good sound doctrine with good solid fruit. If that isn't there, I'm out. You say, well, it looks really good. I don't care how it appears. I followed a bedrock Bible doctrine. And in Christ's day, it was the same that it is today. John chapter 7. The leaders, they were great expositors of the law. They were great scholars. They were all members of the Sanhedrin. They all had great doctrines. They loved this great spiritual in the synagogues and high places. But they were all envious of Christ, and that envy led to his death, and that envy led to his rejection. They were envious of his doctrine. They were envious of his authority. They were envious that the common, ordinary man was gravitated to him. And they were envious of the fruit that he had. And not them. And they had, like many today, absolutely no credibility. <clears throat> I call it the Wizard of Oz principle. We all know the old 1932 Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland in it, you know, and the Tin Man and the Wolf Man and the uh, Straw Guy, whatever his name was, you know. And uh, my kids grew up with it. We, I, we probably still have it on some tape someplace. My girls grew up watching it. Every time it came on, they'd watch The Wizard of Oz. It's a great classic. But it always illustrated to me the appearance of life. Dorothy, who was from Kansas, by the way, uh, she was following her dream on a yellow brick road. She wanted to get back to Kansas. That was her first mistake. <laughs> if God gets you out of Kansas in a whirlwind, that's the hand of God. The only other greater miracle than that would be getting me out of Raytown. <clears throat> Raytown, Missouri, living proof that hell's full and dead men walk the streets. But anyway, she meets these three guys. They also have some issues. And she's trying to get to the Emerald City. Now, that's a picture of New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21. So they're following a yellow brick road, picture of the Word of God. And so they're going down through this thing. And you know, there's a woman that wants to stop them. The wicked witch of the West. By the way, she left our church about nine or ten years ago. But anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of kidding. Anyway, so they're walking down this, this thing, you know. And so they finally, they want to get to see the wizard. Because the wizard has all the answers. The wizard, you know, the wizard, he, he's got all the answers. So they get down finally to Oz, and here's the wizard. And they're, they're looking around, and there's lightning and flashing, and they hear this big booming voice, you know. And, uh, and so they're, they're all in awe. Here we are. We finally made it. Here's the place we want to be, the wizard, all this stuff, you know. And all of a sudden, little Toto, he's the dog. It always takes a little mutt 
to expose the Wizards of Oz. So they're over there, and this Toto is barking, and he starts pulling back this curtain. And here's the wizard, so-called, manipulating all of that stuff to give the appearance that it's really real. And then when Toto, that would be me, starts exposing the wizard, this big booming voice, pay no attention to that man behind that curtain. That's what the world wants to tell you. When you get into your Bible and that Bible starts to show you the truth about the world, what's going on, Christ's coming, and everything about your life, you're going to hear this big booming voice from the government, from the educators, from everybody, pay no attention to that little dog nipping at my heels. It was a phony. It was a phony. And it's just like life. God's people going down a yellow brick road looking for something that only the appearance is there. Now, it wasn't until the good fairy showed up, and I use the word fairy lightly. (laughs) But putting it into the context of the story, you get my drift. That kind. Now, that fairy always, to me, she got him on the right track. Now, to me, that's a picture of salvation is of the Jew. You had a wicked witch, and you had a, a good lady who had truth. And, you know, the wicked witch wanted to deceive him and stop him, but the good witch, wanted, the witch, whatever witch she was, she wanted to get him the truth and get him where they really wanted to go because everything they were going, she woke up at the end of the thing, remember? And the whole thing was a dream. So many of God's people are living that same dream. You're trying to get somewhere that's going to be an end, dead-end street. And you know what? All life is manipulating everything around you, from the government to religion to everything in this world. It's somebody behind the scenes pulling the levers. And you're never going to get truly home that way until you get the truth. Listen. The greatest tools of Satan today will not be the government, though they would be hard to beat. It won't be the world system. That would be hard to beat. The greatest tools of Satan today will be just like it was at the first coming of Christ. It'll be God's people. It'll be men and women who have no fruit, they have no authority, they have nothing. And yet they want to give the appearance And all they do is destroy everything that God is trying to do. And the devil will use them to divide you from your church, divide you from your Bible, and divide you from your relationship with Christ, all under the appearance. So you too can be a barren fig tree. Now, for a child of God, you can be one of three trees found in the Bible. You can be a tree of knowledge of good and evil. You just go shoot your mouth off about what's right and what's wrong and what you think. Facts, but no faith. Just a lot of talk, but no real action. Or you can be a barren fig tree. You can give the appearance and be a tree, but there's just no fruit on you anywhere, shape, or form. So you just give the appearance. Or... You can be a tree of life. You can be a tree of life. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through C says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and if this law must he dedicate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Now, there's a season to our fruit bearing. Mine's almost over. Most of you, praise the Lord, are just starting. But there's a season to it. And the only way you're going to get to that point is to come to the place where you realize that you have to put doctrine in your life. You have to put the right Bible in your life. You have to follow the right people in your life. And God will produce the right fruit in your life. It's just that simple. 
tree planted by the river of waters. Now, after Ezekiel 45, 46, 47, 48, the tree of life planted on the river of waters coming out of the holy sanctuary, that is a beautiful picture of us as Christians with our roots down deep in the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's why in the book of Acts, both Paul and Timothy are such models for all of us. They got saved. They get into a New Testament local church, the church in Antioch, that is a Bible-believing church. Antioch of Syria is the hotbed of Bible Christianity for the first 300, 400 years after Christ, before the Ottoman Turks take over, the Byzantine Empire goes away. They grow. And through that growth of ministry, of them getting in the right place with the right people, with the right Bible, God establishes them. And now they are recognized by the body of Christ within that church, and now they have what the cultists don't have, what the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have, which everybody out there, both the God's people, now you have credibility. Now you're credible. You're not credible because you say you're credible. You're not credible because you give the appearance of being credible. You're credible because people can look at your family. They can look at your life. They look at your church. They look at your Bible. And they see God's hand in your life. And they may not like you they, like they didn't like Christ. They may not like you. They may slander you. But at the end of the day, they have to envy you because you have something that they don't have. Credibility. God is using you. And you cannot deny that. You may not like so-and-so out there for this or that or what he preaches or the way he preaches, like it was Billy Sunday or J. Frank Norris or even Dr. Ruckman. But you can't deny that God used them. And in the same breath that God used them, you've got to look at yourself and examine yourself and know yourself and prove yourself, and you know he's not using you. We're having leadership coming up. I, I, I think this is great. Eighty-nine people. Eighty-nine people. Uh, that's unbelievable. Eighty-nine people. There's something going on here in the lives of people because of that book you hold in your lap. Eighty-nine people. And we are going to take that and we are going to make you better. We're going to take every aspect of that thing and we're going to help you grow. We're going to help you get established and we're going to give you, uh, through this church, the credibility you need to do the work that he's going to judge you at at the judgment seat of Christ. The work that he started in you in Philippians 1.6. He has begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ, rapture of the church. And that's what we're all about. Taking people who get saved and now are better than you were, unsaved, and then through the word of God, through pruning you as a husbandman, through us taking you like Jordan coming over here and the people who we've got here now, they'll come in and the people that just keep getting saved, helping you be better, bringing you to the place in your life that you can be everything God wants you to be. That's what the job of the church is. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer.